Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords, and this is the podcast extension for ROI Show 484. Our guest today is Dan Coyce, writer, editor, and podcaster for Slate Magazine, who will be talking to us about the 50 greatest fictional deaths of all time. Our history buffs today are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Ed, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jay. Dan, uh, please tell us that there's a James Bond movie somewhere on this list. And if not, please tell us why not. Um, if for no other reason, I think there should be one based on pure volume. <laughs> it's true that uh, as quantity of deaths go, James Bond must be one of the top ten franchises in Hollywood. Um, there, you know, I have often found the deaths in James Bond movies a little bit weightless. Um, and... I think of the threats that Bond faces, you know, those are the things that stick in my head and feel like the most dramatically satisfying, the, you know, the laser running up the table or the sharks, um, uh, or, uh, or, uh, you know, those are the ones that I remember. I, I'm curious, I'd throw it back to you. What is the James Bond, presumably villain death that you think is the sort of most iconic? Oh, there's too many for me to keep track of. I can I, I can give you one. It's his his gorgeous love of his life, who turns out to be in cahoots with the evil ones, and she takes the the case with the money transfer of billions and billions, who knows how much, and she ends up uh, in that where they sank that Italian city, and she's in a cage and she drowns slowly as he's trying to get her out. That upset me. <laughs> I don't even remember which movie that's in. I can't either. It's such a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> but but Bond is a great example of uh, losing control of your character. Um, you know, the Bond solution to that problem was we'll just trade out every 10 or 15 years. And the public right. seems to continuously accept the idea that Bond is no longer Bond. He's another Bond. Well, and Dan's right that, you know, a lot of the appeal of those movies um, is the situations that Bond finds him, himself in and figures out how to get out of them. Right, his unflappability in the face of those threats. That's what we're, in general, watching James Bond for, not for the pathos of the deaths. The more recent movies have turned that upside down a little bit and have turned him into more of a tragic figure to the right. point of, I mean, not to spoil the most recent Bond movie, killing it. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Um so, Rick, I uh, in the Dan in the uh, broadcast portion of the show, you talked about funny deaths. What makes a death funny? <laughs> and can you give me an example of four of funny deaths? Sometimes it's it's, it's pure unexpectedness. Um, you know, as in the LA law scene I mentioned, but the one that made it onto the list that I alluded to. Um, uh, on the show, or one of the ones I made on the list that I alluded to on the show um, was from a Cone Brothers movie. And, you know, the Cone Brothers, uh, I think, probably have one of the highest body counts of any filmmakers yeah. still working right now. Um, but instead of choosing, you know, one of the one of their iconic characters or one of their most popular movies, the one that had really stuck with me was... Uh, from one of their least iconic movies, I think one of actually one of their worst movies, uh, Intolerable Intolerable Cruelty, which stars Catherine Zeta-Jones and George Clooney. Um, But there's a a throwaway scene in that movie 
um, in which a henchman, uh, an asthmatic henchman named, henchman named Wheezy Joe, who we, we've seen multiple times over the course of the movie, using his inhaler, um, accosts George Clooney late at night, um, is about to shoot him. George Clooney maces him. Wheezy Joe gets confused about what he's holding in each hand, points his inhaler at George Clooney, puts the gun in his mouth, and pulls the trigger. <laughs> funny, 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 funny. Yes. <laughs> and I found that I found it so stupid, but also so perfect for the Cone Brothers, who I think are our great bards of of how idiotic and cruel fate can be. That is the true subject of almost all their movies. And, um, and I think it's a helpful reminder that for many of us, and perhaps even me, the thing we'll be thinking at the exact moment that of our deaths is, oh, boy, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> right. Um, Dan, I'm, I'm interested because sometimes death scenes aren't death scenes or sometimes the death scene isn't what matters. And I'll give you my example and then ask for you if you can think of others that fall in the category. Um, the original Halloween that John Carpenter did, the, the mm -hmm. penultimate scene of that movie is when Donald Pleasance uh, empties his revolver into, um, you know, into the maskless uh, monster and he flips off the, uh, the the top of a second story uh house and pleasant strolls over and looks down and there's no body there and the camera is a close-up on him and there's no reaction to him he absolutely knew that there would be no body there even though there's no way a human could have survived that and so you know that to me was a super powerful and an iconic scene um and yet technically no death occurred did anything like that pop up in your list things that that where you know it wasn't really a death or it was the aftermath of the death that really mattered yeah well there's one that has um consumed uh fans and uh consumed its creators interviews ever since it happened that i was very happy to include in this list uh which is tony soprano in the final episode of The Sopranos, a much debated and discussed ending that is not officially a death. Uh, it ends, of course, in a blackout before we see what is going to happen to Tony Soprano. Um, and David Chase now has spent, uh, you know, 15 years arguing with people about what that means and trying to tell people that they shouldn't you know, make a decision about what it means, that it means uh, something that something uh, that requires thought and it and that the ambiguity of it is the point. But I think there's a rich tradition in art of the ambiguous death as a very particular kind of ending. Um, we don't know for sure that Tony Soprano died. Maybe you do. Maybe you have a whole pet theory about the guy in the members only jacket or whatever. But what we do know is that the story that David Chase wrote is arguing a certain kind of future for him that ends in a certain kind of way. Maybe it happens right then in that diner with his family. Maybe it ends 20 years down the road. But the whole point of The Sopranos is that Tony Soprano is walking down this path and he has laid the bricks out before him and it only leads to one place. And so you don't have to show the death for it to, for that to be the conclusion in all our heads. Very good. 
Ed. Yeah. Um, Dan, we've talked a lot about movies um, and really haven't talked about um, good deaths in a uh, theatrical setting. Um, and so are there any um, musical theater deaths on this list? And the one that comes immediately to mind is the death of the king and the king and I. Um, and I'm sure there's others out there. I just haven't seen them. But um, how did you set aside your own prejudices in this process? Like okay, maybe you're a movie and a book guy and and maybe not so much interested in musical theater or straight theater. Uh well, I, I mean, I think I probably did a bad job of setting aside my prejudices in general. The good news is that I am a theater guy. And so there's a couple of, I think, really good theater deaths on this list. Um, the one that I think qualifies as a musical death, though it officially first came in a book, is Fantine in Les Mis. Um, a death that I think for, uh, for any theater goer in the 80s was a, an incredible, weepy moment, in part because... She got the death song to end all death songs. Uh, come to me, uh, a real tearjerker. Um, I, I am a musical fan, though not a fan of Les Mis, but I, I understand and recognize the power of that scene for so many people. Um, the theatrical deaths that really stick with me are the ones that, are, that make use of the power and immediacy of the stage itself. Um, and so two very early deaths on this list that I think are crucial to what the list is trying to do are the very first one, chronologically, um, Medea, Euripides Medea, and the death of the children at the end of that play. Um, I think the first recorded shock ending in, in, uh, in, our, in Western cultural history. Um, and then the death of Macbeth. And choosing a Shakespearean death was very difficult you know you could do you could make a list of the 50 greatest Shakespearean deaths honestly including even joke deaths like exit pursued by a bear um but in the end i i decided on on macbeth because um because what that play delivers uh better than any other Shakespearean play and i would argue maybe better than any play period is um is bombast and hubris and uh and the the fact that macbeth goes down fighting uh goes down in a duel never once um expressing like true regret or uh true even recognition of his faults but instead he whips out his sword and tells macduff lay on um screams at him <coughs> excuse me uh that is the death I want Macbeth to have. That is the way I want that story to end. And it's thrilling on a stage to watch this character you've been watching for hours um, get the ending he so richly deserves. All right, Rick, you get the last question. Well, I'm going to make this full circle. Dan, we were talking about this, uh, the impact of cultural, uh, culturally of great literary death scenes where we ponder ourselves at the end. How do you think you're going to go out? <laughs> what a question. Um, making this list definitely <laughs> suggested we thought to me, of that. We thought of that, yes. Yeah, that I do not. It is very unlikely that I'm going to have a heroic death. I don't, I don't think I have it in me, as I don't think most human beings have it in them. Um, 
fate rarely gives you that opportunity. And so few of us rarely seize our heroic moments when we really have that chance. I think I'm probably going to go out something like Wheezy Joe. I'm going to be changing the light bulb. I'm going to think, oh, this chair's probably fine. And the next thing you know, there I'll be on the floor with a broken neck. I just only hope it happens at like age 98. I, I thought you were going to say that you expected to be assassinated by someone who was unhappy that Voldemort's death didn't make the list. <laughs> Happily, uh, no one has gone that far, um, <laughs> suggesting to me that they will send their giant snake after me um, or attack me with a wand on the grounds of Hogwarts. But, uh, but, um, but no, I think it's most likely it's going to be some extremely stupid accident. Uh, Cone Brothers ask. That's the way I'm probably going to go. All right. We would like to thank our guests for this 484th show. Dan Coyce, writer, editor, podcaster at Slate Magazine. We've been talking about the 50 greatest fictional deaths of all time. Our history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio and on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.